0: Hey there, romance nerds. Welcome back to a special mini-sode of Raging Romantics. Today, I get to sit down with Dr. Ewan Haig of DePaul University to talk all things Scottish and Romancelandia. All of our books and sources that we talk about will be linked in the show notes, so make sure to go ahead and click there. And thank you again to Dr. Ewan Haig for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk Scottish romance with me. All right, let's go ahead and let's dive right into the interview.
1: Hi, yeah, uh, my name is uh, Professor Ewan Haig. Uh, I'm at Paul University in Chicago, where I am a professor and I am currently the director of our School of Public Service. So that involves public administration, public policy, nonprofit management, those kind of things.
0: And you specialize in cultural geography?
1: Yeah, yeah, my background's in cultural geography and also kind of urban development, but uh, the it was cultural geography that led me towards reading the, uh, and exploring the the romance literature. Um, yeah. particularly it's focused on Scotland.
0: Yeah. So, and obviously from your accent, you are a former Scot yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I actually came to Syracuse in 1994 yeah. to do my uh, PhD at Syracuse university. And then, um, subsequently started at DePaul in 2002. So I, my, my my friends and family are still in Scotland. Uh, I'm the only one that came over here. Um, so I get back pretty regularly, probably every 18 months or so, though the pandemic kind of threw a bit of a spanner in the works on that. Yeah, yeah,
0: I understand. Um, well, so the reason I asked you to sit down with me today is I stumbled across your 2013 interview with Wicked Wenches, um, where you talked about your research into Scottish romances mm-hmm, yep. and kind of the propensity Americans have for loving Scottish romances mm-hmm. um, and in this podcast that we're doing for this episode we're looking at kind of the lost genres of romance and Scottish isn't necessarily a lost genre or a lost subgenre but what I was finding really interesting when I was doing my research was how Scottish has been very recently overwhelmingly kind of subsumed by Regency mm-hmm. um, when romance was first like really strong on the scene you know 80s 90s early 2000s we had time travel we had medieval we had um kind of pre-1700s pre-18th century but now for the most part i'm seeing the majority of scottish romance lying in post-1745 especially regency Mm -hmm. space and to me that just kind of made me sit back and think for a moment because Mm -hmm. there was just something off about that for really almost fetishizing Scottish romance in a space and in a time when to be Scottish was honestly persecuted
1: um and not in the early 19th century being Scottish wasn't persecuted okay um so there's a couple of things I'd say firstly um the thing that got me interested in this was not so much the time periods as the place. My my background's in geography, as you mentioned. And so what was really interesting to me coming from Scotland to the United States was seeing all these books on the shelves in the mid 1990s, early 2000s that were set in Scotland that I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of any of these books or any of the authors. And um, it was just really intriguing to, um, to, to take a, to, to look at these books and sort of understand this sort of genre. And as you say, at the time, there were supernaturals where they would, uh, you know, encounter Lotnest Monster. There were time travel books as well. Uh, a lot of them involved time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously, one of the major triggers um, and something I wrote about in, in one of my papers was um, uh, one of the major triggers was, of course, uh, Outlander. Um, I believe that was originally, no, it was released in Scotland under the title Cross Stitch, which Mm -hmm. is not quite as resonant, I think. Um, But Outlander certainly had an impact. And of course, that, uh, Diana Gabaldon, I mean, I've never interviewed her. My co-author, David Stenhouse, interviewed her. But um, she talks about seeing an early Doctor Who show and being inspired by that. Mm -hmm. And of course, Doctor Who is all about time travel. And then you've got something like the, the Highlander movie, in the mid-1990s again with sort of time traveling uh, sexy highlander played by a french actor oh. and then um you also had um yeah that's a strange one because i think sean connery who's scottish plays a spaniard yeah and- he does and he has a very <laughs>
0: weird spanish accent yeah. <laughs>
1: and then you've got and then of course braveheart the whole braveheart yeah. effect and that 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 was obviously critical and so you have this idea, I think, at that time of going back in time, and so there's a number of always seems to be women from Ohio go back in time to uh, <laughs> to medieval Scotland somehow, and you know, and 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 things ensue. So, yeah, there's definitely this this time travel element, or there was ones that obviously historical romances, right, just set in the time and the place mm-hmm. um, as well. I think, I, I mean, I don't know what's currently being published you're more ahead of that than i am but i think in the early i mean obviously the regency era is super popular because regency england in particular is super popular because it knows the jane austen era right and Mm -hmm. now i guess bridgerton and Mm -hmm. everything else right so i can certainly see why that's a popular time um at that time politically scotland there's not a lot of scottish nationalism by that time politically scotland is in is very much in the british imperial project mm-hmm. and i think you know i i the, i don't know to the extent <laughs> imperialism is a sub-genre i mean i know some of the i mean if you want to talk about lost genres the real one of the earliest lost genres is the um the middle eastern the the, mm-hmm. the, the chic romances oh
0: but, that's a good point
1: yeah yeah i mean some of the earliest popular romance even going back to the early silent movies but then kind of in the kind of modern romance period i would say what's that post-1965 or post-1970 um, yeah. the sort of the sort of middle eastern chic romances where sort of, you know, you being swept off your feet, yeah. you know, um, in the Middle East, in these sort of desert romances. There's a woman from Australia, um, Jack, I want to say her name is Jacqueline Flesh. I can email you her name. Okay. Anyway, um, but that that's another kind of, lo- that, that era, that, and so for me, it's not so much air, er- Errors and time periods that fell out of favor as locations. I'm Mm -hmm. going to say interested in how places are presented and represented. So, you know, Scotland, mid nineties to about probably 2010, 2015 really was a historical Scotland really was strong in the American popular imagination. This is the same time. The U S designates a national tartan day on April 6th. That's Mm -hmm. designated in 1998. Braveheart is 1995. Um, I don't know when Outlander comes out, but it must be about the same time. Yeah, uh, original,
0: I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, the kind of first one. And so, and then you've got that kind of explosion of of romance fiction, and that's the kind of period I'm arriving in the United States as well. And then I think what what happened was maybe other places became more popular. There's always been a spot for Ireland in the American popular Mm -hmm. cultural imagination. You know, maybe, and then of course, within... Romance fiction. There's been a push of, as as you'll know, to um, incorporate great diversity of perspectives and not mm-hmm. just, you know, the 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 overwhelmingly sort of northern European, um, mm-hmm. you know, traditional white middle class uh, reader. So I think that's certainly something that's happened probably in the last decade as well. Sort of recognition that there needs to be. More subgenres or 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 more diversity mm-hmm. within within the uh, within the field of romance mm-hmm. writing as a whole. So I think it's interesting that you say the move of Scots to England. I mean, I guess it's a way uh, in, in the early 19th century. I mean, it happened a lot. Um, it, it it was there would still be, I guess an element of foreignness if scottish mm. people are arriving in just because of travel this is the pre-trains era mm-hmm. right so you know pre-trains is still a long way to go from and most of those regency romances are set in the southernmost counties of england mm-hmm. around london and and mm-hmm. kind of in the far south and so that was a long way from scotland i mean okay. scotland i mean now it's you, know, you obviously there's highways and planes and stuff but in those days it would still be quite foreign i think um and quite a distance to travel so that kind of fish out of water underdog idea is always uh, attractive i think but what else do i mean what else are people writing about in, in relation to that
0: um so you always see that stereotype of the big brawny Scotsman, mm-hmm. right? And I've studied Scottish history. That was what my first master's was in. I lived in England and Scotland for a while. And I know that that's not the case. Not every Scot is out there in <laughs> in a small kilt and with a claymore on his back and no shirt. As you said in one of your articles, he would probably get hypothermia like if he guy. did that. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is Only for a Night for the listeners, by the way. I Yeah, Only understand. for a
1: Night by Sue Ellen <laughs> Wellfonder.
0: It's a great book. Oh, this um, one
1: here, Laird of the Wind by Susan yep. Fraser King. These are these are ones from the late 90s.
0: Yeah, those are the classic kind of like, I would say the heyday of the Scottish mm-hmm. bodice ripper, I would say. Um, it's just interesting to me that we see this kind of stereotypical, I mean, you see it in romance. There's a lot of stereotypes that are right. um, portrayed, especially in these classic bodice rippers. But I guess... So a lot of your work now, I was kind of looking into it. You've talked about, um, the appropriation, I guess, of Celticness in like Neo Confederacy, I think was one of the, (laughs) um, so do you think that, and this is, I guess, a loaded question. Do you think that it is wrong that we are kind of fetishizing these stereotypes in Scottish romance in America?
1: You know, I used to, but now I don't. Um, I used to think, you know, um, let's skip the confederate stuff for now um i used to be really kind of annoyed that this is what people think scotland is like Mm -hmm. um but when i started interview viewing writers like Blythe gifford terry brisbane uh, margaret malloy um, and susan fraser king you know I, I took away from that, that they are passionately interested in Scotland and want to know more about it. Mm-hmm. And their readers are passionately interested in Scotland and want to know more about it. Yeah. So, yes, there's a stereotype. But, you know, the Scottish Tourist Board and, and people in Scotland, we play on the same t- – you know, the, 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 there's these stereotypes are part and parcel of national identity. And yeah. so whereas people, you know, I guess we sort of – you have to recognize that this is – this is a particular image of a particular time and place, but it doesn't stop the the interest and appreciation in Scotland. And I think, I think there's definitely, there's definitely, um, I mean, if you go to Scotland now, it's nothing like in these novels, right? (laughs) But, (laughs) but um, there's still, there's still castles that are preserved and people can go touring them, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, if you think about it, they are, the money for the ticket goes into supporting the five people who work there and the 20 people who are fixing up the castle to stop it falling down. So, I mean, you have, I think, I I think I grew to appreciate how much the readers and the authors um, took took an interest in Scotland and took an interest in Scottish identity and hope that that would encourage them to find out more about contemporary Scotland and modern Scotland uh, rather than just, you know, go, go beyond the covers of the book. And I think that's something we saw certainly around the 2010s. And I guess now it's even more so with Twitter and Instagram and so forth. But at the time, you know, the um, the writers, when they would tour Scotland, they'd be posting their photos from their vacation on yeah. Facebook mm-hmm. and doing a kind of live I guess it was a live blog or something before before we yeah. had Zoom, you know, doing a live. And so that was kind of like, OK, I'm showing you more about about Scotland. I think the one I mean, I would say one thing is it is, again, if you sort of think about it in geographical terms, the Scotland that is presented in this fiction is overwhelmingly rural, mm-hmm. whereas almost a, a majority of Scots live in cities. Right. And so there is that kind of although there are some kind of occasional books where they go into cities um, there's occasional. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Kerry Lofty. Starlight is set yeah. entirely in Glasgow, which mm-hmm. is bizarre uh, because it's just such a. It's not bizarre, but it's such an unusual move for a romance writer to set it in an industrial city. Right, it's right. just an unusual, an unusual move. Yeah. Um. So, I, I do think there's that sort of recognize that. Hey, you know, the cities are really. I, I grew up in Edinburgh, in Scotland. We have a castle slap bang in the middle of the city. Yep um you know it's it's kind of you know the but the cities you know they have modern city problems they have modern city populations and so forth so it was really funny again talking with the authors um as i was writing this you know you can have somebody going back in time and encountering the monster okay but they want to make sure they get the historical facts right.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's, like, yeah. it's like,
1: if there's a schism in the church of Scotland, we need to know exactly how that was happening. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but wait a minute, you've just sent somebody 500 years back in time. Oh yeah, that's okay. But you know, I want to make sure that the 500 years ago that I'm writing about is, is accurate. Yeah. And, and I kind of appreciate, appreciated that. I mean, uh, uh, about, about, about the authors that wanted to make sure that the kind of times, dates, and experiences of the people were historically accurate, even if some of the you know subgenre sub fan- sub subgenres, you know, supernatural, or whatever, cl- clearly obviously are slightly. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to say the Loch Ness monster doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> hey, you Who never knows? know. Nessie could be out there.
1: Could be out there.
0: Yes, she very well could. Um, as well, the stone that will send you back to Jamie Frazier.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that something we talk about on the podcast is a lot, a lot, is that romance as a genre and romance writers and readers as a whole have this kind of really deep appreciation for diversity, for inclusiveness, but also for research um and that a lot of times these romance writers especially traditionally published will take the time like you just said to go in and really make sure that they have their details their Mm -hmm. facts right that they know who the lord was who is sitting in the next county seat over even if he's only mentioned in one offhand statement so yeah i think that's interesting and one other thing i wanted to ask you about is the scottish american diaspora Mm -hmm. when in my mind i think that us Americans, we have such an appreciation for these romances of place, I guess you Mm -hmm. could call it. Because we as a culture, I have heard it called called like the lost culture, or like the forgotten culture of our own um, heritage, I guess you could say, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I think that there is this unique situation with Americans, where we look at where our ancestors came from, and the diaspora, and we just have this need to connect with that heritage in some way shape or form and mm-hmm. i think that there's so many scottish like the scottish american diaspora of the 1800s the 19th century and going forward there are so many of us mm-hmm. um irish scottish the polish the german that mm-hmm. we see these romance books and we just kind of like clasp onto to them
1: yeah i think um you know the that that's something that's always fascinated me about the united states is this idea that oh i'm half scottish and a quarter you know whatever and a Mm -hmm. quarter something else you know um because i never really thought about genealogy in those terms so there is this there and of course one could argue that you know if your great 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 grandfather moved here in 1827 you're 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 more american right (laughs) you know because you know (laughs) And so, but I do think there's, there's definitely this idea. I mean, what's, I think there's an exoticness and a foreignness. I mean, there is, um, I think people like exploring those identities. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously they're getting further away in time for the classic European immigrants. Um, uh, But obviously, you know, there's other immigrant groups who are arriving all the time um and one assumes there'll be romance writers in those from those immigrant groups you know and interested in those locations so i think part of it is i mean you could say part of it is just the way the market works as well the book market right they want to cater to every audience so hey here's a group of people that are interested in diaspora one thing we do do we do see and this is putting my academic hat back on Mm -hmm. um but there's a There's a few big city Scottish-American societies like San Francisco, Chicago. um, I mean, I'm in the St. Andrews, Chicago of Illinois, which is like the oldest charity in Illinois dating to 1845. Uh, Detroit's an old one as well, New York. And these existed since the 19th century. But then you don't really have any new ones being formed until around the bicentennial. So the bicentennial in 1976 And, you know, I'm not old old enough. I was was in, um, you know, pre-K in Scotland in those days. But from my understanding, the bicentennial and the kind of civil rights movement looking back to Africa, you had the kind of rest of the U.S. population looking back at immigration over the 200 years. So there's a big explosion of interest in genealogy around about the Mm -hmm. mid-1970s, which sees an uptick in... Um, heritage events. And that's also, you know, kind of almost the beginning of some of the uh, romance writing, which probably yeah. some of it comes out of the feminist movement at the same yep. time. Yep. You sort of sell women writing for primarily women, writing yeah. primarily for women yeah. about we, women's experience, right?
0: We In talk a, about one of the first big romance books that like started the genre it was 1982, Kathleen Woodowis. Flame in the Flower, which mm-hmm. was like an adventure type narrative, um, but it was predominantly set in the South. But they were also on a pirate ship, and they were also in England. So mm-hmm. yeah, but 1982 was kind of like the start of the Bodice Ripper.
1: So, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's uh and then that's sort of for me what what was interesting. So you had this kind of, you had this if you sort of do a graph, you had this low number of Scottish American and there were obviously Irish American and Ger- mm-hmm. all of the German American stuff was really huge until the, till like 1917 and then all, that all gets literally erased with world yeah. war one.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's kind of coming back a little bit now with kind of, but it's more tied into drinking culture, I think, and, yeah. you know, beer, beer gardens and, and, <laughs> yes. and, 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 and uh, October fests and so forth. Yeah. So there's yeah. obviously this commodification of ethnicity as well, right. Mm-hmm. That you can sell certain things, um, you know, you can sell Irishness in March. So we'll Mm -hmm. put out our Irish-centered movie Mm -hmm. in March. We'll put out our, you know, Guinness. Guinness will do some huge US-wide promotions in in March, you know, to promote its brand and so forth. And so I think you've seen that, you know... some interesting stuff with italian now because a lot of the people that the italian communities such as columbus Mm -hmm. has now maybe not you know not 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 got the (laughs) reputation they once had and so that's a who's their new hero you know and you can kind of go and now my mind just drifted to those sylvester alone's rocky balboa (laughs) movies but but, um another another person who probably catch pneumonia but um the I, I do think there's this commodification of certain ethnic identities, and again, so what you see in the mid '90s, this kind of confluence of events with Outlander, with Braveheart, with um, there was a Liam Neeson film as well, Rob Roy, um, the kind of the creation of Scott, this National Tartan Day, which had been lobbied for by Scottish American foundations, and so in the mid '90s to the early 2000s, you see another big jump in in counties or cities or states creating scottish heritage associations Mm -hmm. so in terms of diaspora population it's kind of interesting the time period that i'm coming across to the u.s in the mid-90s the number of scots arriving in the united states is is flat or falling to very very few Mm -hmm. you know certainly maybe four figures i mean it's not in the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands that it was you know in the 19th century Mm -hmm. um so you have less people arriving, but a growing interest through kind of popular culture mm. in 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 Scottish heritage. And I think you know it's one of these things that kind of comes in. You know, it, it's day in the sun might come again in twenty yeah. years' time, or, yeah. or or it might not. There's always going to be, you know, a core group who identify with that and are looking for the next 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 book or next movie or whatever with with that on with, with that theme. And I think there's yes yeah, definitely something. Within, w- within the kind of marketplace of, eth- we often talk about the commodification of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, you sell this, this, this thing here in Chicago, there's a place called Greektown uh-huh. that is basically now six restaurants. There's not a lot of people from Greece live there anymore. Yeah. yeah. But there's that kind of, oh, well, and little Italy here as well most of the italian population is gone Mm -hmm. there's certainly not a huge number of people arriving from italy now Mm -hmm. but there's again restaurants and italian american museum or heritage center or something like that you know so there there, there's these places within many cities where if you had enough of that ethnic population they're able to kind of create a cultural cultural footprint in the city
0: yeah
1: and for people who are in smaller towns where you don't have that or people who are in locations where you don't have these immigrant populations or at least you know maybe the fiction maybe the romance novel or the or the movie or whatever that's how you get your ethnic identity connection
0: yeah it's funny you say that my hometown here in Casanova, new york we have um we have a scottish restaurant that is called Mm -hmm. the braylock and that Mm -hmm. has been there since I think it was found in the 1960s originally and it's i think i've strong. been there i think oh
1: I've really been there.
0: yeah it's still owned by the same family anybody who's listening go to kaz go to the braylock they're awesome um but then there's also the irish restaurant called mm-hmm. the brewster which is they're like constantly butting heads they kind of have this little rivalry going on they're on the lake together and it's just funny because that's like the only cultural thing in kaz mm-hmm. i guess we have a greek restaurant now but it's not actually owned by a greek family so same thing commodification of ethnicity Mm
1: -hmm. so yeah yeah and you think about it with food right hey there's mexican food chinese food thai food and these are all americanizations Mm of food from that country right Mm -hmm. so that's what you think of like with the the romance novels it's the americanization of the history you know it's making that history of that country available to you american audience almost all these authors are american i mean they're they're, they're almost all american researching scotland and presenting it to a primarily american audience as well
0: through an american lens through an american
1: lens but in a way that makes well it's not obviously there's a romance element which is attractive yeah yeah. (laughs)
0: obviously But,
1: (laughs) but um yeah it's about sort of making that history interesting and understandable and i think that's something else that made scottish romances particularly resonant with the u.s audience is this cuz a lot of that kind of underdog fighting against the imperial power it kind of go even though the us is obviously a globally dominant military and financial superpower yeah. there's still this sort of idea of you know hey we fought against england in the revolution although technically you fought against Great Britain in yeah. the revolution yeah. um but fought, fought against you no know, the British control in the revolution and established a scrappy little country and yeah. it's kind of heroic ordinary people yeah. taking on the institutionalized power and I think a lot of um I mean I don't remember who I interviewed but somebody said no who doesn't love an underdog right I mean that yeah. kind of and so like, that's probably your your ones that you were talking about with the kind of scotsman coming down to the south of england being a you know underdog he's not the fit he's not the moneyed aristocracy who's supposed to get the girl but Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and it's not it's normally yeah there's not it's normally male protagonists it's normally the male protagonist from scotland
0: yeah i would say probably about 95 percent of the time yeah Yeah.
1: unless they're the kind of historically set ones yeah you know the ones that are kind of you know back and forth between the two characters yeah so
0: yeah. well I think that was a great thought to end on thank you so much
1: oh no you're more than welcome Jackie thanks for getting in touch and there you go
0: Romance Nerds that does wrap up our interview with Dr. Ewan Haig of DePaul University it also wraps up our deep dive into the Scottish subgenre of Romancelandia our look under the kilt if you will um, it also wraps up our series of the lost genres at least for now as, as Jen and I said in our uh, podcast that came out last week, we're probably going to dive back in in the future after we've had more time to think about it. Um, in the meantime, if you have questions, comments, concerns, feel free to email us, ragingromantics at nopl.org. That's at nopl.org. And thank you, as always, to Northern Onondaga Public Library for sponsoring this podcast. And another huge thank you to Dr. Ewan Haig for taking time to sit down and talk Scottish with me. All right. In the meantime, romance nerds, since Jen isn't here, rage on. <music>